announcement before this, uh, the final episode of 2015. I wanted to let you guys know uh, that I'm going to try something new in 2016. God help me. I think I have figured out a possible way to bring back the enhanced version of the Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin Show. Um, For those who haven't been listening to the show uh, for quite as long, there used to be a version of this show that had pictures uh, to go along with the talking. You could sometimes see what we're talking about. There was an audio cue to look at your phone because you could see a new picture to kind of help you visualize what we're talking about. I think the reason it went away was technical. It was hard to make it work for everyone, but I think I might have figured out a new way to do it. Um, and kind of the interesting thing is I'll only really know if it works uh, if I try one and put it out there. So I am going to do that. I'm going to try to put out an enhanced episode of the show. It will be in this feed. You will not have to do anything. You've probably already fast-forwarded the actual episode, but for those that are still listening, uh, I'm going to try to put it out. I'm not sure if it'll work. Um, It's very possible this will be the last you hear of the effort, Um, but then when I do put it out, I'll, I'll make sure to ask you guys, Uh, If it worked, if it didn't work, and then, I don't know, we'll go from there. So enhanced episodes of the Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin Show. We're going to try them again in 2016. And the first one uh, is going to be this conversation I had uh, with this guy who used to do movie special effects for movies like Snakes on a Plane, and now he develops soft robots. But that is the next episode of the Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin Show. Uh, This week's episode, which, by the way, since we're being so technical and honest up here at the front of the show, I should mention, uh, has some recording issues, but it's all there. You're going to love it. I've been trying to get these guys on the show. I saw them, as you'll hear me mention in the episode. I just happen to see these guys at the Renaissance Fair. I don't go to the Renaissance Fair a lot. I'm not a big Renaissance Fair person, but I did go one year. Uh, and the highlight was seeing these guys, and it took me so long to track them down and get them on the podcast. I'm so glad I finally did it. Uh, so without further ado, please enjoy uh, this week's episode of the Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin Show. Here we go. Welcome to the Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin Show. I am Jeff Rubin, and today on the Skype on the phone, we are talking to Stuart and Arnold, a father and son knife-throwing duo out of Texas. Welcome to the show, gentlemen. Hello. Hey, how you doing? Now, Stuart and Arnold, as I was just momentarily confused before we started recording, not your real names. You are uh, Leaf, correct? Correct. And my name is Chris. And Chris, uh, you are you are the father in this father and son act. Yep, that'd be me. And, you know, it is an act. You guys get up on stage, you tell some jokes, you throw knives at each other, you throw knives at strangers, um, but, but you really are father and son. That's not part of the act, right? No, 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 that's not part of the act at all. 37 years ago on Labor Day, he was born at home, and I caught him. You caught him. Were you yep. throwing knives before he was born? Oh, yeah, I've been, I've been throwing knives for a long, long time. I... Uh, Became interested in knife throwing when my grandfather took me to Ringling Brothers Barnum and Bailey Circus when I was approximately four and a half or five years old. And they were still doing the walk-through sideshow at that time. And I saw a gentleman by the name of Paul Lacrosse doing his knife throwing bit. It lasted about seven to ten minutes at the most. And me, being as young as I was, I had absolutely no concept of what the sideshow was all about. So I wanted to stay there and watch the next performance. 
and my grandfather had to explain to me, no, no, we've just watched this as the sideshow. Now we go into the big tent and watch the circus, which at this point to me was very anticlimactic. I, I just didn't understand. You know, like, why can't we watch this again? And that got me interested in throwing knives. And so I, shortly after that, I got in trouble for throwing the, the family steak knives at a, uh, archery target that I brought inside. How long after seeing that as a kid did it take before you, you know, started practicing and taking up this craft? Oh, two years at the most. So you've been doing it since you were a kid? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I've, I've been doing it since I was like seven or eight years old. And any other circus sideshowery, maybe juggling or something like that, or exclusively knife throwing? Oh, no, no. I went through the whole gamut. I, I learned how to walk on stilts. I learned how to juggle. I learned how to do a tightrope. But, you know, I've learned a lot of what they call the variety arts. The variety arts. I've never heard that. I love that. But what what is it about knife throwing? Was knife throwing just the thing um, that originally stuck out to you? Or is it the thing you were naturally the best at? How, how did you come to settle on knife throwing? Uh, well, it turned out that was, I had pretty good eye-hand coordination. And uh, when I was a kid, I was a pitcher on a Little League team. I wound up uh, pitching like three no-hitters in, in one season. That was a lot of fun. So uh, my eye-hand coordination was what stuck out the most, so to speak. And uh, so I continued with that. I did other things through my career. You know, like when I first started in show business, I was doing puppet shows with my grandpa. So this is a multi-generational thing. You worked with your father, too. Well, I have worked with my dad, but not in show business. In show business, it was with my grandpa. I see, I see. Yeah, so look. As it turns out, uh, my my son has been working with me for thirty years now. Yes, thirty years. Yes, I was I was involved in show business with Renaissance festivals and street performing when my son was very young, and uh, I guess he thought this was a fun thing to do, more fun than staying in school. So he came and asked me if he could be a part of the show. Is that right? Do you do you remember that? Oh yes. So what, what, what was your experience like? What's, what's your circus sideshow story? Do you remember like seeing knife throwing oh. for the first time or were you just born into it? I was pretty much born into it. Uh, there, in my family, there is a uh, habit that we don't, we don't force the children to become entertainers. The child has to ask to become part of the show. Like my dad asked to be part of the puppet show when he was a young man. Uh, when I was seven years old, I decided that I wanted to be part of the show. I'd seen my dad on stage. I'd seen people paying attention to him, having fun. He seemed to be having fun, and I wanted to be part of it. So I asked my father if I could be part of the show. And as soon as I asked him, he took me out into the backyard where he had his practice board set up, stood me up against the board, threw knives at me, and then said, now that you know what it feels like to be there, I'm going to start teaching you how to do this. Arnold, how did how did you learn um, in the first place? Was it just the steak knives in the kitchen, or were you formally trained in any way? Oh, no, I, I wasn't formally trained in any way at all. It, it was a, the steak knives from the kitchen, uh, a set of knives that were given to my mom and dad when they got when they got married, they were from Finland. They were really nice. One of them had a jade handle. The other one had the onyx handle. I wanted to break both of those handles, throw them in the trees in the backyard. Everything, everything that I know now, I pretty much was self-taught until I got into my 20s. And then I got a hold of a couple of books and a couple of videos, and I picked up some other pointers, once again, no fun intended. Uh, 
but pretty much everything. <laughs> I, pretty funny. much everything I did was self-taught, and uh, oh, geez, <laughs> it was. I I don't want to say it was because I didn't have many friends, but I I didn't have a lot of friends that were interested in the same things that I was interested in. So, and what were the things you were interested in? The, the variety arts. Yeah, yeah. Well, once again, the, the variety arts. Uh, you know, like the entertaining, the comedy, the, the old time movies. I would, I would rather go home and sit down and watch a Marx Brothers movie than let's say go play basketball. What did Stewart's mom have to say uh, when Stewart took joined the family business? Oh, geez, I, I you got to let me feel this one. One <laughs> afternoon, it, it was shortly after we got divorced. A couple years after we got divorced, I get this phone call, and it's my ex-wife on the phone. She says, honey, we have to have a talk about something. I said, what's that? She said, your son just came to me this afternoon, and he said, and he was like eight years old at the time, and she said to me, your son said, mom, I'm going to be a man soon. There's things I need to learn. There's nothing I want to learn from any of your boyfriends. I want to go live with my father. And so this started a whole family discussion about, you know, like, well, whether or not the boy, <clears throat> excuse me, should pack up and leave California and, and come and live with dad and travel around the country. So they had a conversation with my sister, excuse me, with his sister and my wife. They sat down and had a family discussion. And uh, my, my daughter said, well, you know, he makes a valid point. And she's like five years old at the time. He makes a valid point, Mom. And, you know, like if it makes him happy, he should go and do it. Sure, I'm going to miss him, but he should do what makes him happy. And so the whole family decided, well, okay, it should be a good thing if the boy went and lived with his dad. You know, I feel like a lot of kids, you know, want to do the opposite of what their parents do. Stuart, how old were you when you were like, no, this is what I'm going to do forever? Like, it wasn't just something you were learning. Like, you, were, you realized this was going to be your career. About yesterday, <laughs> I, I figured out that this was going to be what I wanted to do for the rest of my life when I was about 14, 15 years old. How long, uh, how long into, in, into self-taught knife throwing is it before you're throwing knives at other people? Self-taught? That would be you, Dad. I was okay. not self-taught, right? <laughs> uh, and I would have to say, geez, you know, like, I had the confidence. I just couldn't find anybody that would stand still long enough to let me do it. Uh, so I, I was willing to throw at humans when I was about <laughs> when I was about twelve or thirteen because I knew darn well I wasn't going to hit them. But it wasn't until I was in my uh, mid twenties that I actually found somebody that I could fence. Just stand there, and you'll you'll watch. It'll be fun. Who is that first person? Because. If you see the act at a Renaissance fair and you guys ask for volunteers, I'm like, oh, well, we're at the Renaissance fair. These guys must know what they're doing. And everyone in the crowd raises their hands. Tons of people want to get up there and no one's worried you're going to hit them. But that first person, how did you convince that first person? Uh, I think there was vodka involved. Hopefully, hopefully for them and not you. Yeah, yeah, for them, not me. No, no, I was, I was strictly drinking beer at the time. <laughs> And but it, it, it was just, it was uh, some, gal that, some gal that I was dating, and uh, she was interested in show business as well, and I met her at a Renaissance Festival, and uh, I convinced her, I said, come on, you know, let's, let's put together this show, this is what I have in mind, and uh, we rehearsed it a couple of times, and she got the idea, well, okay, he's not going to hit me unless he wants to, and so she started working with me. 
But I, I must say that the very first partner I had was, was a, was a, a ringneck dove. And that was the very first Stuart. And the whole show was based around, uh, Stuart not showing up. And eventually I wound up getting a woman out of the audience and she and the dove wound up having knives thrown at them together. And I, I had to explain to the audience, okay, well, you know, like, you're very concerned about me throwing knives at the dove now, but where was that concern when, you know, when the woman was up against the board? You know, like, Stuart, do you remember when you made the jump to throwing knives at real people? Oh, yes, very much so. Um, I had been throwing for seven years at that point. I was approaching my 14th birthday. Uh, we were working at the Texas Renaissance Festival at the time. Um, I had, according to my dad, the skills to throw knives at people for about three or four years at that point, but I didn't have the personal confidence yet. So we were working at the festival, and they had just enacted a new thing that was a uh, a dine-in theater in, within the festival. And part of the dine-in theater, they had uh, various acts come in and do little bits and then go away. And ours was a little five-minute bit where we would uh, throw knives. We would end up throwing knives at one of the cast members of the festival, and while we were getting ready and figuring out what we were going to do, dad looked at me and he said to me, uh, well, it's time <laughs> throwing on this one. And I, I was a little bit concerned, but I did it anyway. And after that, it was, there was no going back there. There was no ch way that I wasn't going to be able to throw knives at anybody. We keep talking about Renaissance fairs. Is, and that is, I should say, I saw you guys at the New York Renaissance fair um, I actually seen you there twice, uh, most recently a few years ago, and I was like, I gotta get them on the podcast. I gotta get these guys on the podcast. Is that mostly where you work? Is Renaissance fairs? A majority of the work throughout the year is Renaissance festivals. We also do nightclubs, corporate events, uh, parties. Pretty much anybody that'll pay us will work for. So you must be traveling a lot, right? You're based in Texas. Uh, we're traveling about nine, ten months out of the year. Yeah, that's a lot. <laughs> and how, how do you guys get around? Do you fly everywhere? Oh, no. Because you can't, because candy, I was going to ask if you can with the knives. You drive everywhere? Uh, we can with the knives, but there's too much of a risk. If, if uh, we check baggage and the knife and our knives get lost, then we have no way to work. So what we do is we end up driving everywhere. That ensures that we're going to be able to bring all of our, our props with us no matter where we're going. Because these knives are not just like, if they don't show up, you can't just go to Walmart and buy a set of knives, right? I have to assume these are specific knives. Oh, yeah. These uh, the knives that we use were made by my dad. Oh, wow. So these are like family knives. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, are they special in some way? Are they, like, weighted or something? Or is it just a tradition? Like, what, what are you looking for in a knife that you're going to be throwing at people? Well, the knives that we're using, we like to have them large enough that they can be seen from, like, the, what we call the back of the house. Sure, right. If they're, they're a good size. Uh, they, we have two different sets. We have a small set that we use for throwing at each other. We have a larger set that we use for throwing at the audience member for the finale. Uh, they are balanced. So if you put your finger in the center of the knife, that it uh, it's you can throw them equally as well from the blade or the handle, and uh, it, it, they were made for show business. They were actually 
fashioned after the same type of knife that uh, Paul Lacrosse, going back to the guy that I saw at Ringling, they're fashioned after the same style of knife that he used to use with a slightly different shape. So wait, I got to hear a little bit more about your family history because your grandfather, if I'm, if I'm remembering this right, your grandfather did a puppet show, and then I think your father, you said, was not involved in show business, and yet he made these knives that is, uh, you know, yeah. p- part yeah. of the, what, what did he do? My dad and my mom were, were gymnasts. But, you know, like after the Second World War and in the 50s, it wasn't like Disney on Ice or anything like that. There was no place for a gymnast to get work. You either, <clears throat> you either made it to the Olympics or you, you just were a gymnast for fun. There was no money involved. So my dad was a tool and die manufacturer. He was a tool and die man. And he worked with metal a lot. So he had the knowledge and the skills for, you know, like to make the knives that I needed. He got the steel from Sheffield, England. Uh, there are particular numbers for the hardness of the steel. I don't remember what the numbers are on, on this particular stock that he bought for us. Uh, we came up with a shape and a, and a size that we wanted to go with. And it was just a question of one at a time, taking a, a saw to the metal, cutting it out, uh, shaping it the way we wanted it to be on the on the sanding machine. And uh, then we had them hardened and uh, chrome-plated. And uh, ta-da, professional throwing knives. Take me through a throw. You're holding the knife. You're looking at someone. Uh, do you have to, like, what are you thinking about? Do you have to factor in the wind? <laughs> oh, yeah, the wind plays a big part, especially on an outdoor show. We, we have worked on stages where we put a little wind sock next to the target board to, to determine when it would be safe to throw the knife. Mm-hmm. And- I, went out, I went out one year, and we, uh, we scoped out Norman, Oklahoma, they have a, a small two-day Renaissance festival that goes on in Norman, Oklahoma, every year. And I went out and I looked at it, and you know that song that they got where the where the wind comes sweeping down the plain. It, 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 they didn't just write that in because it sounded good. We came to the conclusion that we were never going to work in Norman, Oklahoma. So you just like knife throwing is a non-starter in Norman, Oklahoma, just because of uh, atmospheric conditions. Yeah, it's too damn windy. <laughs> too damn windy. I've, I've, I've had it happen before. We never threw in Oklahoma, like, say, in Texas at the Scarborough Festival in the springtime. You get a windy day where the wind changes from uh, northwest to the southeast, and it, it blows across the stage, from stage left to stage right. And I'm looking at a spot on the board, and when I throw the knife, it hits the board about two to three inches to the west of where I wanted it to go. And it, it makes for an exciting show. <laughs> I bet. And what else are you thinking about before you throw? Are there, are there any other con- considerations that are going through your mind before you actually release? Or are you just trying to clear your mind? I, I try to clear my mind. I try to uh, get as zen as possible. Uh, the, only, the only two things that exist when I'm throwing are my arm and the, what, the target where I want to throw. I, I try not to let anything distract me because there are lots of distractions. There's always somebody in the audience that feels that uh, making a sudden noise in the middle of us throwing is a good idea. Uh, it, it's That's happened? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I can't tell you how many times it happened where somebody says, you know, like, in the middle of a throw, they'll just yell. You know, like, they think, oh, that'll be funny. Let's see, he, let's see if he misses or if he don't like it. Like stops or jerks or something like that. 
But the, the fun ones, you know, like you, you put up with that. It, it just goes in one ear and out the other. It doesn't affect what we're doing. But the one that every now and then you get something that will make you stop and laugh and you have to bring it to the attention of the rest of the audience. Take, for instance, uh, years ago, there was <laughs> there was a four or five-year-old girl sitting in the third row. And when it got to the point where I was throwing knives at my son, and we hadn't gotten to the finale yet, throwing knives at my son. The first night I the board and I hear this little girl go, missed, missed, missed again. <laughs> and I, I had to stop and let the audience know, you know, like, this is what I'm going to have to put up with. I'm listening to this little girl telling me what a horrible job I'm doing because I'm not getting my kid with a knife. And then, but even through that, you know, I'm going to go out on a limb and assume this is safe, spotless safety record in knife throwing. I have never accidentally hit anyone with a knife. <laughs> and this is over a pretty thousands of shows, I'm assuming. Oh yeah, yeah, lots and lots and lots of shows. Man, that's 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 crazy to me because there's such a small margin for error. Like, to, it, you can be that consistent that you can always hit the same spot. Yeah, yeah. It, it, all it takes is practice, you know, and you know the desire to do something that you love. And this was something I enjoyed, and I. Uh, one thing I noticed was a big difference between a big difference between the knife throwing and like say when I was just doing a juggling show there were there were times in the juggling show where you would expect the audience to be quiet but no there's little conversations going on but in the knife throwing show it gets to a point where you know like the audience is completely silent and it's a wonderful feeling to, to know that there's like 400 500 people and every one of them is paying attention to exactly what it is we're going to do next. And it, 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 it's a good feeling. You know, you talk about practice. You have to, you've done, I'm assuming, thousands of these, right? You must have done thousands of these shows already. Oh, yes. And do you still practice, like, you know, before the show, on off days, um, you still have to practice? Oh, yeah. Don't have to practice, but we do anyway. How often do you practice? I practice about three times a week, about an hour at a time just to keep my arm loose, just to keep myself up. Uh, when, when we get close to a show, just before a show starts, I will throw every day for about an hour to an hour and a half every day for two weeks before the show starts, before the festival starts or before the, uh, the nightclub or corporate event, just to make sure that I'm spot on right at the beginning. I, I, like, to, I like to do it, you know, like, Six days a week. I usually take Mondays off. Monday, we call non-day. We don't do anything on Monday. But other than that, I'm usually out there sometimes twice a day. I, I won't do as long as my son will do. My son will go out and put in, like he said, an hour to an hour and a half. I'll go out, I'll go out and do like 15 to 30 minutes in the morning and then 15 to 30 minutes in the afternoon. And then on show days, well, let's say the Renaissance Festival, we're scheduled to do four shows a day. On a show day, I will be on the stage, let's say if the show opens at 10, I'll be on stage by 8, 8.30, the latest, and I'll be throwing for about 45 minutes before the show even opens, just to, you know, to warm up, to make myself feel good about it. it it's it's got to happen, you know, like, uh, I, I'm really hoping that there's somebody out there listening that's involved with track and field, because... I've noticed something with knife throwing. It's almost the same thing with the javelin throw. That you, when you throw the knife or you throw the javelin, if you do it correctly, 
there's a point where it just simply disappears. You can't see it. And then the next thing you know, it's hitting the board or it's sticking into the ground. You know, like a javelin thrower will try to imagine that there's a ring hanging about six feet above his head and about 12 feet in front of him. And what he's trying to do is he's trying to throw that javelin through that ring. And if it goes through that ring, it disappears. And then it shows up further on down the field as it begins to go downward and stick into the ground. And the same thing will happen with the knife. If, if the knife is thrown spot on correctly and it's going right where you want it to go, it'll disappear for a millisecond. You just can't see it. You can't see where it is. And then it finishes its last rotation and sticks in the wood. Then you can see it again. So this, you know, like like my son was saying a little early about, you know, trying to find that sand, trying to find that spot, be in that exact moment. When that happens, it's it's a wonderful thing. Do the throwing knife skills extend to throwing other things? Like, are you capable with ninja stars, throwing oh, yeah. axes, all these? Oh, yeah. yeah. As a matter of fact, darts. Oh, <laughs> darts. You guys ever like hustle someone at a bar in a darts game? Yeah. Only once. I used to do it, I'm not proud to say, but I used to do it a lot. When I, when I was in a senior in high school and when I took that out of high school, uh, darts were becoming very popular in the bars. And I would go to a bar and I would, I would order a pitcher of beer and I would start throwing darts just for the fun of it. And I'd stand there and I would throw with my left hand until somebody came and wanted to play a game. And then I would play the first game with them just for fun with my left hand and I would see how good they were and then we would play another game and it would be a little more interesting this time. Hey, let's play for a picture of beer. Okay, fine. And I would still play with my left hand. But then if any money got involved, then I would switch to my right hand and just wipe the floor up with it. Stuart, are you hearing this? Yeah, yeah. I've, I've done a very similar thing myself. Uh, when, I was, when I was 17, I did what, what we call my hero's journey where I left and went out on my own for a majority of the year, except for the couple of times that we had a contract. And while I was up in Wisconsin, I was hanging out at a bar with several of my friends. And there was a slightly drunk individual who uh, knew that I was a knife thrower and insisted on playing darts with me. And I tried to say no to him several times. I played with him once, finally. And then after the one time I played with him, he uh, and he wanted to play for a dollar a point. I decided to uh, cut the game short when I got up to about $250. So you were, how old then? 17, you said? I was 17 at the time. So you were officially a part of the act even at 17? Oh, I was officially a part of the act when I was seven. When I first started working with that, when I first started learning how to throw knives. I didn't throw knives in the show until I was about 10 or 11, and I didn't throw knives at a live target until I was 14. Arnold, did you have an act before your son joined, and then it became a two-man act? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I had uh, I did something called Arnold the Village Juggler, and if I had... If I had a lane act, then it was strictly juggling and moodling around and having fun that way. And if I had a stage, then I, I did the juggling show, and then the finale was throwing knives at someone from the audience. You know, it's funny that you guys perform mostly at Renaissance fairs. Does the Renaissance thing, does, does that enhance the enjoyment? You guys have great costumes, and I don't know, I don't know if you can hear it, uh, listeners, 
in his voice, but an incredible mustache on Arnold. <laughs> um, so, you know, like you guys kind of, you seem to have embraced the renaissance part of the renaissance fair. Is that, is that just because that's where knife throwers are in demand or is that something you guys enjoy? Well, actually, the Renaissance Festival is uh, that's where vaudeville went. You know, like vaudeville disappeared into burlesque and then it was gone for for a couple of decades. And then it reared its ugly head when somebody out in California said, hey, let's put on a Renaissance Festival and we'll have a variety acts of all different sorts showing up. And it was <laughs> it was a really a saving grace for a lot of people that were just working the streets and looking for some place to perform. Was that when they came up with these Renaissance Festivals that all of these street entertainers and all of these variety artists finally had some place where they could put on a show. Yeah, you know, it's funny because we've mostly been talking about the throwing of knives thus far. But you guys also tell jokes. Like, you've got a very funny act up there on stage, too. How, how long did that take to develop? Who wrote that? Is that a, just something that happens over oh, the years? That was both of us writing that. That was definitely something that developed over the years, and it's in constant development. Uh, every time we think of something new, we give it a try and see how it works. Uh, the originally our show was uh most, as dad said mostly juggling and then the grand finale was a little bit of knife throwing and over the course of the years we developed it to become a just a knife throwing show with comedy in it uh but we do both possess numerous skills uh when i started learning how to throw knives my father also started teaching me how to walk on stilts tightrope unicycle uh juggling uh, sword swallowing. I learned a lot of things. Uh, what I picked up the fastest and what became the best at was knife throwing, which is why we do that as the show. Like father, like son, I guess. Absolutely. So you guys throw knives, you tell jokes. What else do you have to do to be a professional knife thrower? I imagine there's a lot of hustle in just booking shows, making sure people come to those shows. Yeah, yeah. That's the, the big thing was booking the shows. You know, like early in the career, it was uh, a unique situation. When we decades ago, what would happen is we would go to a Renaissance festival. We would find the entertainment director. We would offer them to do our show. You know, like what we call the audition year, where we would come in and we wouldn't have a contract. We would work wherever we could find space to work. If they had stage time, they would put us on a stage. At the end of the year, then we would discuss with them how well we were embraced by their audience. Is this something you would like to have at your show? And if they did, well, then we would negotiate a contract for the following year so we could get paid and have a living space or a camping space as part of the contract. So early in the career was the hard part when you start getting yourself established. You know, once you've got two or three rent fairs under your belt for a couple of years, it's a little bit easier because the entertainment directors will discuss shows amongst themselves and say, well, you know, so-and-so is real good. I'd like to get him in our venue. And they're like, well, how, what do you think about this guy who does the tightrope? Well, I like what he does, but, you know, so I'll hire him. And uh, these days, uh, geez, like I said, after 30 years, it's a little bit easier to get to work. You know, they either want us or they don't. They know what we have to offer. You know, you have been doing this for a long time. Have you seen it, like, change and evolve over the years? Like, how is it different, the whole business, than it was uh, decades ago? One of the one of the biggest upgrades, uh, and this is for Renaissance festivals, uh, it doesn't 
doesn't include corporate or uh, nightclubs. Uh, at Renaissance Festivals, they've when we first got started, a lot of people were traveling around in their bus, in their converted bus or in their van, or they would uh, have a small car and set up a tent or set up some sort of semi uh, uh, temporary structure. Uh, as the, as the years have progressed, as the uh, incomes have become higher, as the attendances at festivals have become greater, uh, the festivals have started putting in uh, housing at the shows. Like some of the larger buildings that they've been building, they'll put uh, apartments over the top and they will rent those apartments to the people that are working the festival. Uh, most of the people at booths that are running, uh, art, the artisans at the booths, they build a living space above or behind as well as a workspace so that they can continue doing their work, whether it's uh, blacksmithing or sewing or, or pottery or any number of different arts that are done at the festivals. Wow, so people really live there. I have to ask, even though no listeners will care, is that the case at the New York Renaissance Festival where I saw you guys? Yes. People live there. That seems like a pretty legit setup they got there. Yeah, they've started... They've started being kinder and gentler to the people. It used to be, well, here's a campground. It looks like that space over there is level. That's where you can put your tent. Uh, it's gone from that to, uh, well, we rebuilt the pub and we put a small apartment above the pub. Would you like that to be part of your contract this year? Because we can't afford to give you a raise. We'll, we'll give you a really nice living space that is actually insulated and has running water. Plus, uh, you get to live at the Renaissance Festival. I have to imagine, yeah. like, after us loser tourists in our modern-day clothes go home and, like, only the Renaissance Festival people are there, that's got to be a fun scene, right? Well, you know, a lot of folks think that we party very hard on Saturday and Sunday night, which is not the case at all, because Saturday and Sunday – we. Saturday night, we have to be ready to work again the next day on Sunday. Right. So Friday and Saturday night are not party nights at all. Sunday night, there's usually a small gathering of folks somewhere in the campground or at one of the pubs, but it doesn't last much longer than like midnight or one o'clock because we've, we've all worked really hard for two days. You know, you've only got two days put it out there, so you might as well give 100% in those two days. So Monday is usually the day where we socialize. And, and Monday, I guess, would be our Friday night. Monday yeah. night is our Friday night. But, but as far as, you know, like, we hear it all the time. Oh, come on, where's the party tonight? Well, you know, if you're talking with me on Saturday, <laughs> the party is wherever you're going to be because I'm going to be in bed by 10. <laughs> Are there other knife throwers out there that you guys run into? Is this like, uh, I don't know, do you guys know any other knife throwers? Oh yeah, there's 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 no a few of them personally. Yep, there's uh let's see, years decade decades ago there was a show called there was a show called Rogue Open Fool and uh, that was John Lefayars, David Casey and Jerome Smith. And all three of them were very good at throwing knives, but they were the only knife throwing show on the circuit at that time. And uh, Jerome Smith was the one who did the, the throwing in the show. Now, as it turns out, John Lefayars, uh, his partner in that Rogue Open Fool show, his son is now, uh, John Lefayars was 
proficient at whip, whip cracking. The, the show that they put on, Rogue Open Fool, their catchphrase was, the show that has it all, whips, knives, and balls. One of them was a knife thrower, one of them was a whip cracker, one of them was a juggler. And so the whip, the whip cracker, his son, John Lepillard's son, I wish I could remember what his real name is, but his stage name is Jacques Zubert. He just recently set a, uh, a Guinness World Record for the most cracks of a whip in one minute. I don't remember what that number was. But they were the only knife throwing show at the time. Now, over the years, more people have learned there's there's a guy on Long Island who calls himself the Great Fergini. There's a, uh, a fellow in California who calls himself Jack Dagger. Jack Dagger, Jack yeah. Dagger. Uh, there, there are, uh, let's see, a, a, another fellow. Uh, oh, geez. Uh, oh, what, what's I, the whipcracker with, with, with Adam? Adam. Adam Weinrich. Adam, Adam Winrich. Has just recently learned how to throw knives, and he's added knife throwing to his show. Uh, the sword fighting duo of uh, oh, Don Juan and Miguel, the, the daughter of the fellow who plays Don Juan, has learned how to throw knives. And when she's on stage with her boyfriend, she does a little bit of knife throwing. So there are more people that are picking it up, and I think what happened there was a friend of mine out in. He used to be on Long Island, but he moved to <laughs> he moved to Las Vegas, Nevada. He has a company called Western Stage Props, and he came to the realization that Long Island was really not the hotbed for cowboys. So he moved out to Nevada, and uh, part of part of his business is selling instructional videotapes. And he had some some people put together instructional videotapes on knife throwing, and that has increased the popularity of it. But the thing that I've noticed is it's, it's not something that a lot of people stick with, no pun intended. Uh, if, they, if, if they don't pick it up right away, if they, if they can't stick like five knives within a week, then they're disappointed and they stop doing it. So it, it's generally been other variety arts entertainers that have recently picked up the knife throwing. Are there any female knife throwers? Uh, yeah, Lucy Casey. Threw knives for a while when she was working with John Lepayars, uh, and like I said, the daughter of uh, what's Don Juan's name? Uh, Jose. Jose. Jose Granados. His daughter uh, of uh, Dakota. Dakota Granados is is throwing knives in the show, and she's she's pretty darn good. They were on America's Got Talent. Is there a cultural roots? Are there cultural roots for knife throwing? Is, does it come from somewhere specific, or is it, did it develop out of the circus? Do you know, like, the history of it? Cowboy shows, Wild West shows, where they used to do a lot of it. Uh, like I said, uh, this fellow that I saw when I, when I was five years old, uh, Paul Lacrosse, he was really popular in the, the 40s and the 50s and the 60s. Uh, there was another fellow by the name of, I don't remember his real name, but his stage name was Prince Chi-Chi. He was also in the 40s and the 50s as a knife thrower. Uh, if, if you go online and search like the Texas Museum of the Moving Image, there was a woman who was throwing knives at her five-year-old daughter in 1940-something that they have on film. So you know, like they're, they're, there's, there's always been somebody out there throwing knives. There's yeah, there's always- a famous uh, Tonight Show clip. I feel like, or, uh, right, like the Steve Allen Tonight Show, right, I think, right? 
No, no, no. Actually, uh, I think what you're thinking of, and it's funny because I got to see that live too. That was uh, burned in my memory. It was one of those nights that I couldn't sleep, and so I was laying on the floor watching TV with my dad. It was Johnny Carson. It was the Tonight Show. The fellow's name that was on the show was Ed Ames. Uh, he played the Indian sidekick on the uh, Davy Crockett show or Daniel Boone. I, really, I, think it was Daniel. I thought it might have been Steve Allen Tonight Show, so obviously I don't know. But it's old, it's old Tonight Show, though. It's like a black yeah, and white. And stuff. this is a clip like when they do like Best of Johnny Carson or whatever. Whenever there's like a Johnny Carson retrospective, yeah. like this is like one of the classic Tonight Show clips. It was a classic piece, and uh, Ed Ames learned how to throw a tomahawk different than most people throw it. He would throw the tomahawk with the blade facing, facing him, so that when the tomahawk hit, it would hit with the handle pointing up. And so when he threw the tomahawk, he threw it at a target board, and they had put an outline of the person on that target board. Well, his tomahawk hit the guy in the crotch, making the handle look like he had an erect penis. And Johnny Carson wouldn't let him touch it. He wanted to take it off the board, but Johnny said, no, no, don't touch it. Don't, don't, don't even get close to it. And I remember that vividly because like, I, I was laying on the floor watching TV with my dad. You know, Everybody else was in bed, and here I am. As far as I'm concerned, it's very, very late. It's the middle of the night, even though it's probably only like 10.30 or 11 o'clock. But I remember, I saw that live. It's amazing, because that's like, if you saw that live, that means like you didn't catch it the next day on YouTube, or you didn't like DVR no. and catch up with it a week later. Like, you had to watch it, The Tonight no. Show, the night it was on, or you were never going to see it again. That's that's pretty much the way it ran, yeah. Yeah, they, they, they did not show clips from TV shows on, like, say, the Today Show in the morning, or anything like that. But yeah, I remember it vividly. I remember it. It was very funny. My dad laughed hard. And it was, I would have to say, less than a year after that, that my grandfather caught me throwing. We, we had hand axes up at this, uh, little hatchets up at the sports club that we belonged to in the Camp Elsinore in the Wachung Mountains in New Jersey. And uh, I got in trouble for throwing these little hatchets at a, at a uh, black walnut tree. And uh, I, I'd never seen my grandfather that mad before in my life. And uh, he took me by the hand and he took me over by the Schuppen, which is the, it's the, I guess the German word for work shed or something. And took me to the wood pile and I thought I was going to get, I thought I was going to get spanked. But no, he showed me the wood pile and he says, this is the only tree that you throw a tomahawk at. You throw a tomahawk at a tree that's dead. You don't throw one that's growing. Because he planted a lot of those trees that were up there and oh boy, was I in trouble. So it wasn't even a safety concern. It was a it was a nature concern. Exactly. It, he was he was like, "How dare you? You know, how dare you? It might it might not cry when you stick it, but it, you know, it's still a living thing, and you don't do that." Do you have any tips? And a strong don't try this at home. But I'm curious, like, what is the first thing you need to know about throwing knives? Like, what's the first thing you taught your son about it? Uh, practice. And when you're done practicing, practice a little more. And after that, practice some more. So there's no like pointer of just like, oh, what you want to do is just like oh, turn your wrist a little. No, you, you want to keep your wrist uh, fairly locked. I mean, every, every person is going to throw a little bit differently. And once you get the muscle memory and learn how to do it properly for yourself, it doesn't matter how you do it as long as you do it the same way every time. Do you two have a, a different technique? Uh, we do an overhand throw, which is... Pretty much, uh, it's it's A, the easiest throw, and B, it's what we call a show throw. 
the military, if, if the military is teaching you how to throw a knife, they're generally teaching you either an underhand or a sidearm throw. And the reason for that is so that you can keep the, uh, the edge of the knife to the side so that it can penetrate between ribs. Well, that's not a concern for you guys. No, not at all. We just want it to stick in the board. We want it to look flashy. And we want everybody in the audience to be able to see that it's flying through the air. So we use, we use oversized knives. We throw from a greater distance than a majority of people. And we, uh, we do an overhand throw that's a lot slower than is necessary for combat. But is, uh, but is there a difference between your two techniques? Is there like, Arnold throws it like this, but Stuart, he's got his own thing. Uh, I throw a little bit harder than my dad does. And he makes funny faces. I do, yeah. No matter how hard I try, every time I throw, I make a funny face. You are uh, stoic as the knife leaves your hand, I take it. I am. Dad is stoic. I, I do this goofy, downturned corners of the mouth thing that makes it look like I'm a, uh, a, a puppet of an old man or like I'm angry or something along those lines. I've had lots of people, lots of photographers uh, give me images from the point of view of either being the target or a little off to the side of the, of the board. And every single photograph of me throwing a knife has me looking angry. I mean, you are throwing a knife, yeah. you know, it's sort of an aggressive act, even though like you guys obviously are trying not to hurt anyone and you're, we're doing it for fun as a celebration. It's this joyous thing. But it's, it's, yeah, you're throwing a knife. It might make sense that you look a little angry. Uh, I, I try not to, though. I mean, I don't want the person that I'm throwing at thinking that I'm angry with them. That'll make them scared. But I guess it gets to what you were saying before about clearing your mind. And ideally, you're not thinking about your face at all. You're just like in this no. Zen space and focused on your art. Like, you shouldn't have to worry about your faces. That seems like not the show, you know? Yeah, but it doesn't, it doesn't translate well into photographs is the only problem that I have with it. That, I believe. It's funny thinking about, like, Davy Crockett and throwing tomahawks. Are there any movie knife-throwing scenes or movie knife-throwers where it's realistic, or is it always just a little Hollywoody? Well, I can tell you about one television knife-throw that is absolutely realistic, and that is on the television show Elementary for the first season. I think it's either the sixth or the seventh episode. Uh, they hired me to do behind-the-scenes knife-throwing because the main character, uh, Sherlock, was throwing knives. So the knife-throwing in that is 100% real. So they, like, show him throwing and then cut to your throw? Correct. That's kind of cool. Yep, yep. Have, have you guys ever had other opportunities like that to, you know, consult on knife-throwing in Hollywood? Uh, well, I, I worked on an independent film called the lost princess and there was knife throwing scene in that where where i did the knife throwing they made it look like somebody else threw the knife but i did the knife throwing i don't know does it feel hollywoody at all does it feel like it diminishes the art to you know just cut it up a little no you know like it it, it's it's an industry and they they hire different people for different reasons they you know the, the actor is hired for doing what he does and then the stuntman is hired to fill in what the actor can't do. And, you know, it's put together with the Hollywood magic, but, you know, the paycheck is the paycheck. You know, <laughs> if you can get the gig, you take it. Right. <laughs> I, don't, I don't mind. I I would have loved to have been uh, 
I would have loved to have been in front of the camera a lot more than I have been for my entire career. You know, I, when I lived in Hollywood, I worked for the industry, and I figured I would be I would be discovered in the uh, commissary, but that never happened. <laughs> you know, so I, all I did was build sets. But, you, know, you do have a lifetime in show business, though, which is uh, you know more than a lot. More than a lot, like you, you guys are working successfully. You're working with your son, like you get to travel and do like. Uh, do these things? Have you ever considered like a, a reality where your son just wasn't interested in knife throwing, like most children, for whatever reason, he just didn't get into knife throwing, and you had this whole career uh, on, on your own? It seems like it'd be so much less fun, right? Oh, indeed, indeed. I am, I'm, I'm very proud. First of all, because he came to me and wanted to work with me, and I am more than proud of the fact that he stuck with it now for thirty years. You know, it's, it's, and I, I'm blessed. I'm a very lucky man. You know, I, I, I have a, a talented son who wanted to work with me. And so, yeah, I'm tickled pink. And not only work with you, you work with you on the thing you already love. A pretty unique thing you love, if you don't mind me saying. No, no, not at all. Not at all. And it's fun because like, you know, like we've been in the business for like, I've been in it for over 30 years now. My son has been in it for 30 years. And over this time, we've got to watch other people who have made a career of Renaissance festivals, whether it's as an actor or whether it's as a craftsperson or an artist. And we've watched their children grow up. And not all the kids want to stay with the Renaissance festivals. As a matter of fact, uh, one of the children that grew up around Renaissance festivals being homeschooled until they got to high school and then went to college, he's now a doctor. He's, a, he's an MD. You know, he's a full-fledged doctor. He he ran away from the circus to join the real world. To, to the great shame of his parents. No, not at all. Not know, at all. Know, because now, now you know, like, they don't have to work rent fairs for the rest of their lives because uh, they have a son who's making good money and he'll take care of them when they get old. Is there a renaissance fair community? Like, I imagine there's people you see at all. Oh, yes. Very much so. There are hundreds of people that travel the country all year long doing Renaissance festivals and uh, art shows throughout the country throughout the year. Some of them do uh, shows that are as little as one weekend or one day and then move on to the next one. Others do the major Renaissance festivals that last for seven to nine weekends and work the full run of the festival and then move on to the next festival. Uh, If you... If you are part of the what we call circuit, then there is not a single weekend that you can that throughout the year that you can not work. And then, Stuart, do you have children of your own? I do not. What, can you imagine one day raising a child into this life? Absolutely. I, I would prefer to raise a child into this life. Whether or not the child becomes part of the show is entirely up to the child. But... If I end up having a child, then I can't see raising it any other way than doing fairs, traveling around the country, possibly even around the world. And, and Arnold, you've been doing this a long time. Like, is this something you think you, you want to do forever? Well, at this point, <laughs> you know, I, I, I've been making a joke for the last couple of years that I've been telling people that I'm thinking about retiring, thinking about retiring, and a few years go down the road and they catch up to me and they say, Hey, I thought you were going to retire. They go, well, I found out you need money to retire. 
<laughs> you know, like I, I, I might really be loving what I'm doing, you know, like, and I might own my trailer that I live in. I might own my van that I travel around with, but you know, I don't have, I don't have a big bank account. I don't have a lot of money put away. It, it's, it's, well, I'm not going to say it's been, uh, hand to mouth all the time, but there have been times that, you know, like ramen was on the menu five nights a week. You know, but uh, as far as, you know, like my son being raised up around the Renaissance Festival, he was surrounded by intelligent, talented people of, you know, like all different scopes. The glass blowers, metal workers, uh, people who worked in fabric, uh, painters, uh, performing artists uh, and sculptors, sculptors, you know, like he he was raised or if, if there was something that he wanted to know about, he didn't have to look it up in a book. He would walk, walk into someone's workshop and say, I've been thinking about how you do that. Would you? And they would show him. And, you know, he had a lot of hands-on experience with a lot of things that people only like to say, turn on the internet and look at it on the screen and say, oh, so that's how that works. Right, right. Well, it's, I think I love what you guys are doing. I love what you guys have done. I mean, the show is so fun. Uh, and it's, it's just, uh, so cool that you guys have, t- uh, turned it into this family, t- taken, not only taking this thing you love, but turned it into a family business. I think nothing can be cooler than that. Uh, what, how can people find out more about where you guys are going to be? Uh, that sort of thing. Book you for their corporate event. Well, the easiest way to get in contact with us is through Facebook. We have a Facebook account, uh, Stuart and Arnold. I don't remember the exact, uh, address for it i can look that up real quick uh, but yeah facebook is the easiest way to get a hold of us facebook.com slash stewart and arnold yes there you go and stewart is spelled with a w remember that oh good note good note stewart and art the stewart and arnold knife throwing show uh if you guys get a chance to see this it's great it's like like you guys are great like the Every joke lands, like the audience loves it, the knife throwing's exciting, like it's a great show. If you guys get a chance, uh, definitely go see Stuart and Arnold. Uh, gentlemen, thank you so much for being on the show this afternoon, talking about knife throwing. Well, you're very welcome. Yeah, I enjoyed it. It was fun. Thus concludes not only this week's Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin show, but actually uh, all Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin shows for 2015. Quite a year, some of my all-time favorite episodes, Paper Airplane World Champion, I'm talking Palindrome World Champion, we had that Mental Floss run in the middle, I'm the Fireworks uh, Expert, one of the highlights of the year for me in podcasting. Uh, and of course, Arnold and Stewart, two guests who I've literally been trying, they've literally been at the top of my wish list for years. I'm so excited uh, to finally bring them to you. 2016 Jeff Rubin Jeff Rubin show featuring the maybe return of the enhanced edition 2016 Jeff Rubin Jeff Rubin show I'm excited about it thank you all again um, for listening throughout the year love doing this uh, and I can only do it because you guys are there believe me (laughs) if no one was listening it'd be a lot harder for me to say I do a podcast so I really do appreciate it um, all year round Uh, have a great holiday everyone and I'll see you next year bye